Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verse 19 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace fully clothed. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames leaped out and killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell down into the roaring flames. But suddenly, as he was watching, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up the three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, they said, we did indeed, your majesty. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire. They aren't even hurt by the flames, and the fourth looks like a divine being. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the princes, prefects, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be crushed into heaps of rubble. There is no other god who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Julius. I think you could be a professional reader. You got the voice. <clears throat> and thank you, Kit, for sharing with us uh, a report on the missions. Once a month, we try to bring somebody up here from the missions committee who reports on some of our missionaries around the world, and that was a good report, Kit. Um, we have been studying the book of Daniel, and today we're going to look at faith that changes culture. I like the graphic that we use here because I want you to look at that. That's the, that's the city, the Babylon that Daniel and his friends have been brought to their exiles living in a foreign land, they are not in power. They are subjugated in a way that they must follow whatever the customs and rules are. But as we've been studying the book, you, we can learn that they are faced with challenges where they want them, the Babylon wants them to change their values to have Babylonian values. And that's what the struggle has been for them. And I'm, I want to say to you, this is the way that we are preaching this series. In the same way that we can look at these three guys, and they're in that city, you are in a culture too. And you're in a culture where we are faced with challenges as well. 
where secular or atheistic or other religions want us to change our values. They would like us to amalgamate our values to cultural values that are different than what the gospel teaches us. That's been the approach to this series. What does it look like when a believer in the gospel, somebody who's put their faith in Christ, lives in a culture that can be antagonistic? We looked last week at cancel culture, to live in a culture where they would seek to cancel you if you are voicing something that's in opposition to what their value or what their perceived truth is. And we looked at that last week. We looked at, at the values of cancel culture and the heart that comes out of it. And we've led up to this point. Do you remember the cliffhanger? Which was Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And how do we stand in that? I was reading and studying and one of the examples that was listed was a, an old church father, John Chrysostom, who lived in the mid-300s. And he was brought before the emperor. And the emperor said to him, give up Christ or you're going to be banished from the kingdom, banished from the country. Chrysostom said to him, you cannot, you cannot banish me for the whole world is my father's land. Can't banish me. The emperor then said, well, then I'll take away all your property. You cannot. My treasures are in heaven. Well, then I'll take you to a place where there is not a friend to speak to. You cannot. I have a friend who is closer than a brother. I shall have Jesus Christ forever. The emperor finally threatened, then I'll take away your life. And the answer was, you cannot. My life is hid with God in Christ. And the emperor then said, what do you do with a man like that? And I think that that's what the driving force behind our study in Daniel really is. To build up believers who can live in a culture, who can live in a city like this, or for us it's a village or an island, and live in such a way that when we are faced with the challenges and the confrontations, what do we do with a believer like that? There's something different. There's something that has brought us through the challenge. And we're going to get that from our text today, from our study. I'm going to go backwards from where Julius started his reading because there's something that's going to set up the whole lesson for today. And I begin with the first point, which is faith under fire. When you live in Babylon, you live in a culture that will be antagonistic where your faith is going to be challenged. So, the gospel under fire. And what we see is that your, your identity in Christ will be challenged. Putting your faith in Christ says, I believe that this guy lived some 2,000 years ago, that's the son of God, that he lived a perfect life. He came out of heaven, born as an infant, clothed in flesh. He's still God, but he lived a perfect life, died on the cross for me. I put my faith in that. He rose again so that one day I can live again too. And some people, that's crazy. How could you believe that? But beyond that, everything else that Christ teaches, put your faith in not just who I am and what I came and did, but all my words, the whole counsel of God. How do you live your life? Your approach to your job, to your wealth, 
to relationships. We put our faith in the whole counsel of God and everything. And your identity in that will be challenged when you live in Babylon. We see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down. And in verse 16, they said, uh, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able... And I just stop right there and I, and I point out that they're forced to make a decision. Where is your ultimate identity? And they're saying, we serve our God. They have drawn the line. My identity is in our God. Not the Babylonian gods, not in the power of the kingdom that's represented in this statue that you, you built that you're trying to make everybody bow down to. My identity is in Christ. Now, if you're in a small group in our church, you meet during the week, and usually I take from the sermon questions, and you are to interact as a community group, and you dig into God's Word a little bit more, and there's conversations. And one of the things I did this last week was, in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar built an idol as a manifestation to his pride, forcing people to bow down, I think all of us struggle with idols in our hearts too. And I put in the questions for small groups last week, a list Tim Keller wrote on idols, and he characterized it this way, life only has meaning, I only have worth if, and you fill in the blank, this happens or I have this in my life. And you go through the list, it's, it can be things like an approval idolatry, I am, if I am loved and I'm respected by people. If I'm not loved and I'm not respected, then I, my, my life blows up. I don't feel like I have worth or meaning. I don't want to live because this idol is gone. It's been taken from me. And Keller is very good about pinpointing these. You could have an idol of comfort. You don't want anything difficult or hard in your life. A particular quality of life. There's a control idol that you have to be the master of your life in control of everything. A work idol that, that you're striving to be productive and get a lot done. A power idol, idol that says, I have power and influence over others. It could be uh, individual, personal uh, idolatry, religious. It could be relationship. It could be racial and ethnic. It could be image idolatry. There's a whole list. And I'm going to come back to this because what I want you to see is Nebuchadnezzar has built an idol and his world's going to blow up because he's going to become furious, right? But what we see in this moment is there's not an idol for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have made the declaration, we serve our God. And Their identity is tested, and also what is challenged is a belief in the ability of their God. Not only is faith in Christ, our identity, tested and challenged, but so is do you really believe? Because sometimes we can put our faith in it, but when there's something really difficult, maybe we don't really have that much faith. I mean, this was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was like, Wow, your God is really great at dreams. He interpreted my dream, now I can sleep at night. But then over here, he's like, your God's not strong enough to save you from the fire. You better bow down. I have that power. You're in my hands. And see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, no, we're in God's hands, not yours. We're only in your hands in the capacity that God allows. 
But ultimately, we're in God's hands, and He's able. He's able, because that's the response. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand. Now, and then they said, but if not, they could die. But there's two kinds of powers here that they kind of highlight. And I, I, I picked up on this, and I, left, I, I laid it out this way. Their ability, the, the faith ability is challenged in two areas. The first is they believe he's able to save them physically because they stated he is able to save us from the fire, to deliver us, but maybe not. And if not, he may not. And, and last week we, we highlighted that, that aspect that meant that they loved God more than, than the gifts that God might give them. And that particular gift would be, answer my prayer, I don't want to die in the fire, but if not, I, you're still number one in my life. They believed it could save them from the fire. But let's say God saves them from the fire, they come out of the fire, there's another power still present. You know what it is? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar still has a power. Maybe he tries to finish them off a different way, right? And so... In their response, you see two things. He is able to save us physically from the fire, but then I, I said he's able to save us spiritually as well. Because ultimately what they're saying is our citizenship is not Babylonian. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And you get this from the way they say it. And he will deliver us out of your hand. Sometimes deliverance comes through death. You can kill us in the fire. He's able to save us from the fire, but if not, we're still going to be delivered out of your hand. You think that if you're, you're in my hand and I, 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 I finish you, but we're not finished because ultimately we're in God's hands. And they're saying it that way. They don't belong to a kingdom of the earth. And sometimes... Christian, our deliverance does come through death. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he says this, that through death, now listen to this, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver. Do you see there in Hebrews, he's saying he, that's Christ, Actually, deliverance is at the end there, comes through after death. And that's central to what we believe, that Jesus came and died on the cross for us to deliver us from who does he say right there? From Satan who has the power of death. Sometimes deliverance does come through death. And when we pray for deliverance, history has many examples of Sometimes he saves us out of the fire. Sometimes the fire consumes us. There have been many martyrs throughout history. People that die for their faith. But we see that when we live in Babylon, our identity will be tested. Our, our, do we believe in the ability of our God can be challenged in the outcome? Faith in outcome. We, we put our faith in our ultimate outcome. And this little section right here, which is, their response, one writer said, is one of the greatest statements in the Bible. I wanna, I'm going to read through it and add the last part. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of 
your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God, gods of, or worship the golden image that you have set up. And we are seeing they're drawing the line where God says no, I have to say no. And before Daniel has been able to orchestrate middle ground approaches that brought about deliverance, now there's no middle ground. They're going to have to go into the fire. And we said last week that's because it's part of God's plan that's going to bring about change. For them to believe, they have to see their faith go all the way. Otherwise, they won't believe. They won't see it. They won't witness. Because this comes down to the power of their most high God versus the Babylonian gods. And really, the ego and pride and power of Nebuchadnezzar. And their God's going to be bigger, but they got to see it. And we see this because when we live in Babylon, we're going to be challenged. Throughout Scripture, we see God's people challenged. Noah was challenged. He built that ark. And how many years did the people come around and say, crazy guy, what are you doing? He was the weird guy in the neighborhood. Moses was challenged as he led his people through the desert. There were leaders that came out of his own people that came to him and said, we don't think you should be a leader. We want to change. Peter was challenged, not from within, but from without. When they said, aren't you one of the followers? And no, no. And three times he denied him. He failed. He was challenged. His faith was challenged. Jesus was challenged. When he went into that desert, it says that Satan took him up to, to the high point and said, look, everything that you see, if you bow down and worship me, I will give it to you. And he was challenged there. And what was he being challenged with? He was being challenged with a kingdom, getting a kingdom without the cross, without the suffering on that cross, without the death on that cross. But we know that, that he had to go to that cross, that death, came up, that death brought about deliverance for us all. And we see that. We will be challenged. When you live in Babylon... You will be challenged to compromise. One pastor wrote out a list that kind of walks through the Bible and catalogs the cost of compromise. Adam compromised God's law and fell right in with his wife's sin and he lost paradise. Abraham compromised the truth and lied about Sarah. He almost lost his wife. Sarah compromised God's word and sent Abraham to her servant Hagar, who bore Ishmael, and we lost peace in the Middle East. Esau compromised for a meal with Jacob. He lost his birthright. Aaron compromised his convictions about idolatry. He lost the privilege of seeing the promised land. Samson compromised righteous devotion as a Nazarite. He lost his hair. He lost his strength. He lost his eyes, and he lost his life. David compromised the moral standard of God and committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, and he lost his child. Solomon compromised his convictions and married foreign wives. He lost a united kingdom. Ahab compromised and married Jezebel, and he lost his throne. Ananias and Sapphira compromised their word about giving, and they lost their lives. Judas 
compromised his supposed love for Christ for 30 pieces of silver, and he lost his eternal soul. Is it any different today? You will be tempted to compromise, to adapt and adopt the values of Babylon. But I want to tell you, don't. Trust in God. Trust in His Word. The Bible says that God is good, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like He is. Sometimes the fire is hot, and we say, why? The challenges can get to us, but know that He is good. Trust Him and His Word. If you put your faith in who he was and what he did on the cross, my eternal security, I have a faith in that, then you should be able to put your faith in the whole counsel of God. What does he say about relationships? What does he say about marriage? What does he say about our approach to money and positions of power? All of these things, we need to look here and say, what is the counsel of God on these things? And apply them and put our trust. Because Babylon will come along and say, no, 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 no. We look at marriage this way. No, no, no. We look at money this way. And that's where the challenge to compromise can be. Don't compromise. Remember Daniel, the way that he's dealt with these compromising situations is to know what does God's word teach? What does the counsel of God teach? To know and then to make his decision. What do I believe about money and relationships? What do I believe about these things? And then he acted with courage. That's the pattern. And when we go into that city, that Babylon city, that needs to be the bedrock for us. What does God's word teach? Make a decision about it and be committed. Be committed, be confident in what God's word says and be courageous. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Now, if you can do that and you don't compromise, then you're going to go into Babylon, and you know what? Your world can be under fire. You will face challenges. You will face fire. Not maybe literal fire. could be a different kind of fire. They may try to torch your rep reputation. They may try to speak words in a way that, that devalue your work, who you are, your testimony. But we're going to see how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk that road, and it leads to a moment of change in the very culture that they live in. And that's really what I'm driving at. How do we change culture to draw it towards a gospel-centeredness, pointing people to Christ, right? And sometimes we got to go into the fire. They got to witness how we deal with the fire. And so we're going to pick up here where Julius started reading, which is uh, verse 19. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And so here's what I want to say. If you're not going to compromise, here's what you might be faced with. And the first is this, that Babylon may hate you. They may look at you and say, that's what you believe. And they may have disdain for that. It may, they, to them, it may sicken them. It may, they, they may hate you. I mean, there's a spectrum here from disdain to like, they may not be Nebuchadnezzar where it stands up and they are furious, but he is, he's furious. 
And I always, as I read this, I thought about that really is a reflection of the heart of Satan, the enemy of God. You know, when you read about where sin came from, where did sin come from? Because God made the world without sin. And there's two passages in particular in the Bible that give us insight to that. One in Ezekiel, one in Isaiah. And you have Lucifer, who was the most magnificent angel that God made. And it says that pride filled his heart. And his heart, in his heart, that's where sin first made its ascendance. Right there. And you know what it says of, of him in that moment? It said, every thought, every feeling that Satan had, everything that was coming out of him was hatred towards God. Just imagine that. Imagine you leaving today and you just go out and you're living your life and every thought that comes into your head is filled with hatred towards a particular person. That was Satan. He hates God. He hates the people of God. He hates the bride of Christ. That's the church. And you see What comes out of this whole cancel culture and Babylon values, it's led up to this moment where the most powerful man now has a hatred for God's representatives. It says his face was contorted with anger, this change in his face. Babylon will hate you. Babylon will act differently towards you. Imagine being in a workplace and I've had people come and tell me, you know, I've I got to be careful in, in the lunchroom at work because I'm watching someone else. They come in and they start talking politics or they start talking cultural values, essentially. And there are people who feel really strongly a particular way and they get angry that this person wouldn't have the same view as them. And now what I've watched is they go back and they're working and these people won't talk to those people. They change. They didn't know you had those beliefs. Now they know you have those beliefs and their heart disposition towards you has changed. Culture says, if you hold that view, you're a hater. And you know what? I'm not going to be connected to a hater. Because what we see in Nebuchadnezzar is a change. It actually uses the word change. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. Well, if you just go back up the chapter, earlier he was trying to give him a second chance. He knows these three guys connected to Daniel. He knows they helped bring relief in my life because I couldn't sleep. I had this terrible dream that kept coming and I couldn't sleep. Yet I, I associate that group, Daniel came forward, and then I was relieved of that. And also what came out of that is some good words, that, that their God says that, that I'm this, uh, the head of gold on that statue, you remember? And then he puts them in charge, and they're good at their job. I mean, every owner of a business would like people to work under them that are really good at their job. There's a lot of goodness there, right? But suddenly... His disposition towards them has changed. And so when we go into Babylon and we build relationships with people, just know that underneath it all, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces in high places that Satan hates the people of God. Babylon will hate and Babylon will act different towards us when sometimes it comes out 
what we truly think or believe. And then Babylon will act against you. Not only does their disposition change, but, they, but they'll act against you. Just the fact that these people said, I'm not going to talk to them anymore, that is an act. They made a decision. Not only did their heart disposition change, but their actions towards them changed as well. So we look in these verses, 21 to 23. It says, then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it says that they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So he makes a decree. He gets up. He's angry. Throw them in. Oh, and by the way, turn the heat up. So I, I put here, first of all, it can be extreme. When they act against faith, it can be extreme. And I always say there's a spectrum, right? Nebuchadnezzar was a guy of extremes. He builds a statue. It's got to be 90 feet tall. It's a representation of my power. The furnace, seven times. I, I was thinking in my mind, does it make that much of a difference? I mean, they're going to burn up, but it's just an exclamation point to how furious he is. And it doesn't give us the description I don't know if it's a walkway that, you know, maybe they, they, that came up to a point where they would toss them in, but it's like, bind them up and turn the heat up. So these, some of them are getting more wood to throw in there or coal or whatever, and they're throwing it in, but it doesn't instantaneously turn up. And so they're walking towards, and it says he took strong men. These were healthy, strong guards who tie them up and they bring them up. And somewhere between them bringing them up to toss them in and getting back, they died. So here's what we see in this. How will Babylon act? It can be extreme, but I put here, sometimes it can be rash because it uses the word urgent. You know, somehow the protocols for how you throw someone in the fire got lost because of your rash thinking and ordered actions. Because you know what happened? Collateral damage. Those other guards died, and they didn't deserve that. So sometimes they'll act in a way where they don't care about collateral damage. What they care about is what they believe to be true. And they can act in urgency to defend that or to seek their own perceived retribution in it. They can be rash, and they will hurt others. This is the culture of Babylon. It's what we see out of Nebuchadnezzar. Because the Bible says seven times, extreme, urgent, rash, it killed those men. Collateral damage. Now, I want to finish this with something I don't normally do, which is to give you kind of steps that you can take to change the culture wherever it is that God's placed you. I'm not a big believer in three steps to this and five steps to that. But I thought today I'm going to build it into this point. So my last point is how to let faith change the culture that you live in. Because ultimately that's really what we're driving at. We are called to make disciples of Christ, to be missionaries, to go into a culture that needs Christ, to live in it, to learn it, figure out how to communicate Christ to that culture to build the relationships and leverage everything that God has given us for the kingdom of Christ. How do you change the culture then? Especially when you're a minority. 
not, not ethnic minority, but faith minority, values minority, beliefs minority. And so how? Number one, we wait on God to reveal himself. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I liked your translation that you read. Julius said divine. It used the word divine. And what I want to point out here is God chooses when to interject himself into the affairs of men. He's always in control. But at any time, as he's watching his plan unfold, he shows up when he wants to show up. When he knows what is the best moment. And he knows this is the best moment. Because they got to see his people walk through the fire. But in that moment, he shows up. So they throw them in. Okay? And here they are. Astonished. Wait a minute. There's four guys, and why are they walking around? And he uses the word unbound, okay? So my first point is, wait on God. And we already looked at some of the, sometimes the compromise is not adapting to a value, like this is what they teach about sexuality, and I'm, I'm going to leave my belief in sexuality and adapt Babylon's view of that. Sometimes the compromise is, I just can't wait on you, God, like Sarah who says, go sleep with my servant. Because God said, you're going to have a child. And obviously I'm barren and now I'm old. And she couldn't wait. And so what I want to say to you is, if you go into Babylon and you're trying to reach it, you have to be patient on God to work through you. Wait on God in His timing. His timing is perfect. And a lot of times what we believe would be perfect is going to mess it up. But they have waited. They've been committed and they're, they're courageous. They're thrown into the fire. And now God shows up. Can you imagine, like, for me, as a, I'm like, you know, I'm a coach. I'm like, just in the nick of time. You came right when we needed you. If you came a little bit later, <laughs> this story's over. But he came. And I like, it says, he's like the son of the gods. Now, just a quick note on this. Most theologians, they believe this is a, Theophany, which would be known as an Old Testament appearance of Christ, the Son of God. So the God that we believe in exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all eternal. Sometimes there are cults out there that have a false teaching that says Jesus had a beginning. And they go and they say, look, he's born, he had a beginning. He can't be equal to God because he, he had a beginning and God's eternal. That's not true. Christ has existed for eternity. He is totally equal in attributes to his Father. And this is a moment where we see him in the Old Testament. And there's other moments too. He is like the son, a son of the gods, divine. Christ has come. And he's standing there in the fire with his guys. He stands in the fire with you. When you walk through hard things, he is there. Wait on God to reveal himself. Number two, wait on God's power to work. You see, they had to see it. Now, I, I'm using the word power because particularly in Babylon, they perceived 
there's a multiplicity of gods. And they all had powers. I mean, just think about the Greeks, right? Zeus was the most powerful god. And in scenes like, like Elijah, where God's prophet said they built an altar and there's going to be a competition, essentially. Elijah's God versus the pagan gods who can fire come down and burn up the sacrifice and they're, they're doing their dance and they're calling, they're cutting themselves. It, it, sometimes God works this way. Power versus power. And what you're going to see is this power actually is empty. It's vacuous. It's, it's non-existent. And then there's the power of the Most High God. And sometimes people, for, for, for a culture to change, they need to see the reality of the power of our God. And it's seen through walking through the fire, right? And there's two kinds of power here. The first I put here is Nebuchadnezzar had power, right? There's a power that they're going to overcome, which is Nebuchadnezzar. And, and that's seen with the words, the ropes are burned off. I, the, the first reading, you're like, why are you telling us that they bound them up and they had hats on? What does that matter? They're wearing all their clothes. You're throwing them in with their clothes on. Yay! We didn't, they didn't have to see them naked. Is that, what, is that the point? The point is, they got everything on. Their robes, their hat. And because it was urgent, they tied them up and they throw them in. The only thing that burns up are the ropes. The symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's power that you're in my hand. The ropes burn up, but the clothes don't. The hat stays on their head. And they're seeing they're, they're seeing that, and they're seeing, obviously, that the fire has not killed them, has not consumed them. I've got to read this part. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Look what comes out of his mouth. Something that he saw has now moved him from, your God's good at dreams, but he can't save you from fire, to now going, Servants of the Most High God. Right? You're seeing change. Come out. Come here. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego come out from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together. And what did they see? And they saw that the fire had not had any power. There's the word. Over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. So they come out. Now just imagine because if you've ever been around fires and smoke, you smell like them. I remember I went into the wilderness with my father once for like four or five days. We only saw one person. We went into the mountains of Montana and survived. But we had to live around the fires because we didn't bring good insect repellent. And it was the highest mosquito season in like 10 years, they told us. So we were getting eaten alive. We would build a fire and we would just stand in the smoke. We just, most of the time you move away from smoke. And let me tell you, when we walked out of the, of the woods and there was my mom and my wife and they picked us up, they gave us this big hug. And the first thing they said was, whoa, you smell like smoke and fire and dirt. They didn't smell. What, what a statement to be made. And I think what you're seeing here is Nebuchadnezzar had a power lower than their most high God. Fire has a power over life and death and lower 
than the Most High God. And the thing I want to lay out for you right here is just look at this sentence. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. And the thing I want to challenge you with is this. Something has power over you. Something does. You wrestle with things. You're tempted by things. What is it? You could just remove the word fire and put, what is it that has a power over you? Lust? Money? Drugs? What? Do you know that there's a way in which you can change culture? That they have to watch you walk through the fire and the thing that they see? Wow, that doesn't have a power over you. Why? Because you're grounded in the most high God. And, that, and there's a way in which I want to say to you, be a Daniel, be a Shadrach, be a, be a Meshach, be a, an Abednego. We live in the world and we wrestle with the same things the Babylonians do. But we're grounded in the Most High God. And it may take time. I want to show you in the next point that sometimes they're going to look and see it doesn't have power. This is like an, a moment, an event, I could say. Some of you may have to demonstrate it over time. I'll show that in the next point because what I say here is not only do we wait on God's power to work, but they have to wait on God's work to be witnessed. They got to see it. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't come to belief until he sees it, right? And this is contrasted to Jonah. Jonah is told, go to Nineveh and proclamation evangelism. They shows up, he stands up, and he preaches, right? But he wasn't called to go live in Nineveh over a lifetime, like we've seen God's people where it says, go into Babylon, build a house, have kids, get married. That's a lifetime. That's a, there's two kinds of evangelism there. And the evangelism he's talking about is, you're going to live in Babylon. You live in Guam. Sometimes there's, there is the need to stand up like a Jonah. But the vast majority of the time, especially when you're going to reach a secular culture, is to live alongside them and let them see the power of your God in your life. Overcome things. When I say, wait on God's work to be witness, verse 27, which I already read, gave you all the people, the satraps, the governors, the counselors. And look what God does. He brings the elite of Babylon all to this one point. And not only is Nebuchadnezzar witnessing it, but all of the most important people in all the land are witnessing it. They are all going to see the power of the Most High God in this moment. 300,000 of them is what we said last week. 300,000. They see something. What is it they see? They see something authentic because it's, he's using the word power. They're seeing something that's a, that's a real power. Your power is fake, weak, less in fact, you are like a slave to trying to draw out whatever you can from the thing that has power over you. But what they see in, in these three guys in this moment is a real power. It's authentic. And you know what else they see? Something different. And I kind of get this from a little bit later, verse 29, where Nebuchadnezzar is making this decree, and he says this in the decree. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And what he's saying is this is different. There's, no, we, there's a lot of gods out there. You know what? Whew. There's no God like this God. None of your gods. Let's see you 
300,000 jump into that fire? Is your God going to save you like this God has done for these three guys? And it took them having to witness that in that moment to see authenticity and something that stands in stark contrast to what they hold on to as powerful in their lives has to be witnessed. And to this I say, maybe you need, need to be like these guys, to be a witness. Sometimes it looks like them, but sometimes it looks like Paul. You know, when you get to the New Testament, Paul kind of goes through this period of change, more time, right? And you know what they said of Paul? It was less of an event like these guys, but he would come around and there was whispers. Isn't that Paul? That's the guy who, perse- isn't he the one that persecuted the church? And they're like, they're blown away by the change in his life. We used to know you this way. You valued something very different than what we're seeing you now. Now what we see is essentially Christ has changed him. And so what I'm trying to give encouragement to you because I don't want you to have this belief like to be Shadrach. It's like one moment. But what if we fail? Sanctification is a process. Sanctification is a word in the Bible that means becoming more and more like Christ, getting rid of the sinfulness in our life and becoming more like Christ. The fruits of the Spirit are growing in your life. Love, joy, peace. You used to be angry, fury, like Nebuchadnezzar. Now you're this guy, it's like, peace? Contentment? These are the signs that you're walking in Babylon with the power to help change it. They've waited on God's word or his work to be witnessed, right? Number four, you need to wait on God's deliverance. So we're waiting on God to reveal himself. He's sovereign in the timing. Then we wait on God to work, you know, and then we're waiting on his work to be witnessed. Now deliverance comes. Look how long it took to get to that, right? Deliverance now, because It says in uh, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. There's some power in those words because a couple of things happening there. One, he's recognizing their God, but he's also pointing out the commitment that they made, the commitment to integrity, because he says they did not yield up their bodies to worship in this way. They had integrity and didn't compromise to their God. He's talking about that hard road that was walked where the temptation to compromise lures so many away. He's seeing what they did with their lives. And so I wrote in here, we're waiting on deliverance. In the decree, he says this, Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I love this, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God able to rescue in this way. You remember the, uh, the plotters? said they were malicious, part of that cancel culture. The word betray is to find information and to make it public to try to destroy 
That's what they did. They were plotting against these guys. Not only that, there was false testimony because they added little things that weren't true. The deliverance comes now because now, imagine being those guys. Oh, that failed. Okay, what's our next plot? How can we bring these guys down? I can just see them going, I'm out. You know why? Because if it fails next time, we're going to be torn limb to limb and our houses will be laid to rubble. I'm out. Don't touch those guys. And there's a way in which God has walked all these guys through this that not only does it bring about change in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, it's a witness to, to all of the most prominent and powerful people in the land. It's, we see gospel belief growing in that culture, but it has also secured their own personal safety and future. God has brought them through it. And in the end, He also promotes them. We see that because it says in the very last verse, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So I, I was thinking, what, how could they be promoted anymore? It, it used to be maybe they were in the provinces, but there it says in Babylon. They're brought into the capital. Now they're elevated even there in, in, in uh, an even higher position of influence. They've waited and God has delivered them. Now we get to the very last point, and it's this. Don't wait to know God. This whole time I've been saying, wait on God to reveal. Wait on God's power to work. Wait to be witness. Wait for God to deliver. And now I'm going to thrust it back on you and says, don't wait to know Him. Do you realize when He threw Him in the fire, there's the, there's the three guys, and then they're all watching. Suddenly there's a fourth guy, and it wasn't like the three guys were like, who is that? Where did it, who is, who are you? It's like almost the way it's written, it's like they know each other. You know why? Because they did. They knew who their God was. Sometimes we wait until we get to the fire and now we're like, I need God. I need, I need to know you. I need to know how you can help me. God, help me. That's not how the Bible encourages us to go about it. The Bible says, we come to know God now. In fact, Paul wrote, I mean, of all the things in life to aspire to, to want, to build into your life, do you know what he said was the most important? To know Him. To know Him more. To know Him more and more and more. If, if there's a way to like draw a line that says, I know God 50%, well, strive for 55 Five for, strive for 51, strive for 75. Paul says, I need to know him more. And I'm just going to tell you right now, the ceiling, 100%, you're going to get there and go, oh, what? there's like a whole other 100, 100 point level. There's not a, there's, it's a he's unlimited. The, the, the greatest theologians, it's like everything that we know about God is, it's enough to know him, but it's a lot. Strive to know Him. Do you have a personal relationship with Him? It's like in the fire, He comes, they know each other. Do you? I look out here and it's quite a mix. Like, I know Jeff very well. I know Nob because you were stranded here for a year. There's your mythological wife he kept talking about. She's present, I guess. You know, I, I know lots of you to different degrees. Some of you I don't know at all. I don't know your names. 
Do you know Christ? You know, there's this, this description of the end where the Bible says people are going to come at the end and, and be like, I know him. I'm in. I'm going into the kingdom. And Jesus says, whoa, depart from me. I don't know you. And they go, whoa, what a minute. I thought, we knew, I thought I knew you. I mean, I did a lot in your name. In the name, in your name, I fed the homeless. I don't know you. In your name, I, and there's a whole list of things that you can do in his name and never know him. If you know him, there's conversation. There's time spent in his word. You want to know him? He gave you a whole book about him. Then get into it. Get to know him. And that's the challenge. Do you know him? If you don't know him, I would encourage you to seek him. If you don't know him at all, see, I'm speaking kind of like to people that have some level of knowledge about Christ, but maybe you're somebody who doesn't know him at all. Maybe you're somebody who thinks, like I said, I did all these things in your name. You're saying, I don't know you. And he's like, depart from me. And there's eternal separation from him. And I think we live in a culture here that has built into people's lives a way for them to think that they know him. Because on Sundays they come and they go through all these religious motions, but on Monday, and even in those motions, there's like these acts that say your sins are forgiven, but then they leave. And the next day they go out and they live in ways that totally reflect the values of Babylon. Not a follower at all. There's like, I want to hold on to this little security for, my, for eternity, but the whole counsel of God, I can't stomach that. I'm my own king. I'm like a Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be my boss. But this is the work of God. Sanctification is to continually bring you back to his word and say, you've got to surrender to what he says. If you don't know him, I encourage you to seek after him. Because you'll find a God who's gracious and loving, who has no limit to how many times he forgives, who walks with you in the fire and has a great future for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were committed. They were courageous. And yet what we see is this little story that helps teach us how we can have impact in the world you place us. That might be on a military base. It could be in, in the government of Guam. It might be in the, the, the private sector, in a business. It might be in our homes. It might be in our families. But we need to seek after you. And right there at the end, as we watch what they did, they waited on you, Lord. They, they were committed, and then they had to wait. They had to wait on you to show up in your time. They were committed to you, and they had to wait for you to work. And because of that, the unsaved world got to witness your power through their lives. And you delivered them. You answered prayer. And to give us this closing thought, don't wait to know you. Grow in our knowledge of you. Or start from square one today if we don't know you. We lift this up in Christ's name.